Go ahead and find John chapter 9 with me. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I'll go ahead and invite you back this evening at 5. This is a fifth Sunday night of the month, if I'm counting right, uh, which in, uh, in my case means we do something a little bit different. We give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, we take a, uh, an urge that, uh, that Paul gives the young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, and we just take it very literally. So this evening at 5, we're going to come read the Bible together. One of the biggest ironies in the Gospels is that the people in the know turn out not to know anything, and that the people who don't seem to know anything are the ones who know. And so you have on the one hand the learned Pharisees. You have these supposed experts in God's word, the people you go to to settle every question you have about the law of Moses. These are the people with the most intimate knowledge of God. And in reality, when push comes to shove, they are the ones who are the most hostile to their own Messiah. These experts in the Word of God want absolutely nothing to do when the Word of God is before them in an incarnate form. And then on the other hand, you see this in the Gospel of John. You have a group like the Samaritans. The Samaritans who can't even get the right place of worship right. They can't even get the books of the Bible right. They don't accept anything after Deuteronomy as, as God's Word. They, they know almost nothing. They get everything wrong, and yet, when confronted with this incarnate word, they're the ones who more, much more regularly than the Pharisees embrace Jesus, and they confess Jesus as the Savior of the, uh, of the world, and they often do this without even witnessing a miracle. And so it's a rich irony. The, the ignorant ones know, and the ones in the know are ignorant. And that irony is front and center in John chapter 9. This is a story about how the experts cannot understand, while the laymen have no trouble understanding. But the irony is brought to life even more through, through a, an additional image, and that is through blindness and sight. John 9 is a story of a blind man who is healed, and yet in the aftermath of that healing, it is revealed that there is still blindness all over the place in Israel. Yes, a blind man now sees because of Jesus' sign, but now seeing people have become blinded by that same sign. So I want us to think about this ironic story about how blind people see and about how seeing people are blinded. So let's begin in verse 1 with the unseen sign. So Jesus has been speaking before the crowds that are gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles, and there have been uh, divided opinions uh, over the people about who Jesus is and what his teaching means, and the officials are increasingly getting uncomfortable and even angry with Jesus the controversy of chapter 9 is set off not by a public speech, though, but by a sign. But ironically, a sign no one really actually witnesses, or hardly anyone witnesses. This is John 9 and verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So Jesus and his disciples passed by this pitiful blind man begging in the streets of Jerusalem. And the disciples ask in verse 2, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there is a giant assumption here. They assume, and this is a common assumption in Israel at that time, they assume that there is sort of a very strict spiritual cause and effect, where if someone has some sort of issue, a personal plight, personal hardship that Very often that can be traced back to some sort of personal sin. So let's pause for a minute and talk about that assumption. There is a grain of truth in this. Suffering, hardship, disability, all these things ultimately do result from sin. Because God created a good world without deformity, without suffering, without death. And it was sin that corrupted that good creation. And the consequences of that are felt acutely in in instances like this, where this man has been born blind. And yet, that broad truth is not true in a, in a specific sense. To assume this connection is always a direct cause and effect, where there's always a straight line from my own personal sin to my own personal hardship, that connection is not, is not found in the Bible. Well, to be, to, be, uh, to be precise, it is found in the Bible, that connection between direct cause and effect. It's found in the mouth of Job's friends, who God rakes over the coals for thinking that because bad things are happening to Job, he must have done something wrong. Job is, in fact, an innocent sufferer. He is a walking, uh, a walking disproof of that. So the disciples are making, making this mistake. Has something happened? Has, be, has he sinned? And Jesus says, no. He says their assumptions about suffering and disability are wrong, and they're as wrong in their mouths as they are in the mouths of Job's friends. He's not blind for a sinful reason. In fact, in verse 3, he says... He is blind for a righteous reason, quote, that the works of God might be displayed in him. The task of displaying that work is an urgent one, Jesus says, because I am here for such a limited time. The opportunity, he says in verse 4, for the light to shine most directly through my signs, that will soon give way to night. And by that time, opinions about me will be settled. So we are in a time of day, a time of light. So he says in verse 5, this man's blindness gives a perfect opportunity for the light to shine and for sight to be imparted in more than one way. And so in verse 6, you have the sign itself, the healing. And we have to say the manner in in which Jesus works this sign is very odd. You understand he is perfectly capable of speaking a word, of just saying something. There are times when he works signs, he raises people from the dead, and he's not even the same location. He goes, go and you'll find your your daughter alive or something like that. But in this case, he does something very physical. He combines his own saliva with dirt to make mud. He then rubs it on the man's eyes. And then he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that's a very interesting thing. Why does he do that? I want to make a suggestion. I want to make a suggestion of what's happening here. I think what Jesus is doing in these verses is deliberately echoing the earliest chapters of Genesis. 
you see it in verse 5. In verse 5, it's pretty obvious. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, which is an obvious echo of Genesis 1 when God said, let there be light. Into the darkness, the light shines. There's Genesis stuff happening here. What he does in verse 6 is combine dirt with the work of his mouth as a means of giving new life. And I, re- I didn't think of this myself, but someone else pointed this out to me. This could be an echo of Genesis 2 when God combines the dirt of the ground and the work of his mouth to create man, when he makes Adam out of the dust of the earth. Maybe the way to think of this is sort of as acts of new creation. Uh, a, a, a laying claim to the God of, of Genesis is, is in fact who, who is standing before them. And so in Jesus, a new light is given. In Jesus, new life is imparted from one who has been sent from heaven. Well, the healing is so unbelievable that the man, after he is healed, and his neighbors, those who knew about him, who walked past him, they can't really even believe that it's him in verse 8. And they say, how could this happen? And he gives in verses 10, 10, 11, and 12 a pretty straightforward response to his incredulous neighbors. What is a, a mild confession, we might say? Who did this? He said, a man called Jesus healed me. So let me just note two things before we move on. Number one, from verse 7... All the way down to verse 35, Jesus disappears from this story. Jesus is nowhere to be found from verses 7 to 35. Second, because of the manner of healing, this blind man who is healed hasn't actually seen Jesus with his eyes. So he anoints his eyes with the mud, and then he instructs him to wash. And he goes off to wash, but Jesus isn't there when that happens. And when he regains his sight, Jesus is not there. If anyone sees the sign, it's probably just the disciples, although maybe not even then. They saw the mud thing, but not the washing. But no one, no one really sees the sign. The Pharisees haven't seen the sign happen. The man's neighbors, they, they, don't, they didn't see it. They don't understand it. But the man himself doesn't even see the man who worked the sign, which is an interesting, which is an interesting uh, development. So we have the unseen sign. This is one of many miracles in the New Testament. What is, what is most interesting to me is what happens in the aftermath. This is when the real lesson of this sign hits us. So we come to verse 13 when an investigation of this sign occurs. But we find it is a willfully blind investigation. So he's questioned by the neighbors and he gives a pretty straightforward response. But in verse 13, now comes some hostile interrogators who come to question the man about what's happened. Verse 13. John 9 verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind... Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So this extraordinary thing, and, and word makes its way around, it cries out for comment from the religious authorities. What do you make of this, of this sign and the man who did it? If a miracle has occurred, we need to know what this means. We need to know what God might be up to. We need to know if perhaps a new Elijah has arrived or some prophecies being fulfilled. You know, if the prophecies of Isaiah, of the blind receiving their sight, are being fulfilled, this is pretty monumental. So they come to the Pharisees, these experts in the law, the people who know about these texts, who know about Isaiah, who know about Elijah and all of this stuff. They're the enlightened ones. You go to them for answers. 
Now, John waits until verse 14 to drop the detail that all of this occurred on the Sabbath day. And we've seen this play out before. You know, Jesus has already been in hot water for healing on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. So they question him about this. Now, I tend to think that this blind man in this story is pretty savvy about things. Um, and, and it makes the account of what happens uh, in these verses, I think, to be pretty, pretty courageous on his part. And his defiance is, is courageous. What he says, he knows he's incriminating both Jesus and himself as Sabbath breakers. He's incriminating Jesus because he's healed on the Sabbath. He's incriminating himself because he's washed on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees would have had a problem with. And that's exactly where the Pharisees go in verse 16. They make the day of the week the only detail that matters for rendering a verdict about what happened here. Yeah, a miracle happened. A blind guy sees, yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you know what day that happened on? Although there is some dissension. Yes, some people are are stuck on the Sabbath thing. But other people say, well, only the power of God could do something like this. To which I want to say, that's a good point. If only they'd run with that. If if only they'd said, you know, perhaps what's wrong isn't that Jesus has done this on the Sabbath. Maybe what's wrong is our understanding of what the Sabbath is and what the Sabbath is for. Maybe the sign should be evaluated as much as the day on which it occurred. Now, that would be a good train of thought, but it seems to stop there. So they turn to the blind man. They say, you're the guy this happened to. What do you say? And he's no dummy. He'll he'll demonstrate in the the next couple paragraphs a very uh, sarcastic wit. Um, and he'd just seen that opinions are sharply divided among the interrogators. So he answers in verse, verse 17, in full knowledge, many of them won't like what he's about to say. And he answers, who do you think this is? His answer in verse 17, he is a prophet. So do you see a progression in verse 11, who healed you? And he says, this man called Jesus. But in verse 17, who is this that has done this? Who is he? His answer, a prophet. He is creeping in the direction of truth. His spiritual eyes are opening a little bit wider, even as his physical eyes have. Well, verse 18, we've already gotten the drift of this, but we really are hit over the head with the fact that this investigation is not to uncover truth. It's to marshal evidence to discredit Jesus. The blind man has refused to be intimidated. Instead, he strengthened his confession about Jesus. So they can't use the blind man, so they go to the blind man's parents to try to discredit the blind man. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. And then John includes this parenthetical statement. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the parents, they're willing to confess the facts about their son. They say, yes, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind. But they are not willing to venture into into how he was healed or what the sign might mean about Jesus. And what John tells us in that little parenthesis is this should be interpreted as cowardice. Because they know of a policy that had begun in the synagogue that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ should be basically excommunicated. Put out of the synagogue, which means put out of the community. Ostracized. Have your business prospects hurt. Have your friend group go away. Have all these things, this sort of civic life go away. 
the religious establishment had drawn a line in the sand. They'd rendered their verdict. The verdict is no Messiah is allowed. No matter how many signs he does, no Messiah is allowed. And it's becoming more and more clear that, that accepting Jesus, confessing Jesus is going to come with a cost. So I think the blind man and his parents sort of represent two responses to the cost of discipleship. One is to speak the truth about Jesus. The other is to know the truth about Jesus but not speak it. And we need to say something here. We need to say that, that there being a cost, there being negative consequences for being associated with Jesus, there is absolutely nothing new about this. There is nothing unusual about this. This was normal even before the crucifixion. Do you see it here? Even before Jesus is crucified, even before the, the, the more, more massive crucifixion of, uh, 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 persecution of Christians in the next couple centuries, even before that, in the Gospels themselves, there is a cost for being associated with Jesus. And, and I just want to drive this home. Our, our perspective can be, be very, very narrow. What we tend to do is we compare the world as it looks to us now as the world as it seemed to us when we were about... 12 years old or maybe 20 years old and just with that perspective we say well it seems so much more immoral now and less people believe the bible now and we're afraid of the negative consequences uh, coming on christians in the future and all of that and that's kind of our perspective and there might be something to that but you know what a wiser perspective is than our own narrow personal view wouldn't it be to compare the world as it is now to the world as it was hundred years ago, the world as it was 500 years ago, the world as it was 2,000 years ago. Because when we do that, when we have a little bit wider perspective, when we know something of history, when we know something of the Bible, we find there's absolutely nothing new about negative consequences for proclaiming Christ. There's nothing unusual about that. What is unusual is our idea that there should not be consequences. That's unusual. That's new. Our idea that becoming a Christian should make my life more convenient. Our idea that becoming a Christian should make my life better here and now, always, and there should never be anything negative associated with that. That's unusual. That's ahistorical. Now, there's another irony here. I want you to notice. Do you remember in verse 2, the disciples asked if, if a sin this man's parents committed, perhaps, caused his blindness. So who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Did this man's parents' sin cause his blindness? Jesus says, no, that's not true. What does turn out to be true is, is the exact inverse, inverse of that. No, his parents' sin didn't cause his blindness, but his healing from his blindness did cause their sin. That's true. His healing from blindness caused their sin. Because as he's healed, they act as if the healing of their son isn't good news. They act as if it's a threat to their status, and they're not willing to own up to Jesus. Well, we come to verse 24. And we see that the son, the, the, the parent's cowardice, doesn't pass on to their son either. Verse 24. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the, begin- never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So what they're doing here is they are leaning on him hard to change his story and to change his tune about Jesus. This phrase in verse 24 is a very interesting one. They say, give glory to God, which sounds like a nice, nice thing to say. It's actually a, uh, a quotation from the story of, uh, in, in the book of Joshua of Achan. Do you remember Achan, who at the fall of Jericho took some of the, took, took some of the loot against the will of God, and then they're experiencing these disasters, and they're unsuccessful in their next city at Ai. And so they, they finally figure out it's Achan, and they're trying to get Achan to fess up, fess up at what he'd done. And they tell Achan, the first thing they tell Achan is, give glory to God. And what that means is, Achan, with God as your witness, tell the truth. God is your witness. Tell the truth. So they're leaning on him like they leaned on Achan. Ironically, though, what they're urging him to do is to tell the opposite of the truth. When they say give glory to God, what they actually mean is the opposite. Blaspheme God. Lie before God. Rather than giving God glory through speaking truth, they're urging him to blaspheme God by calling God's Messiah a sinner. And so they say, we know this man is a sinner. This is the way this needs to fall, blind man. We know he's a sinner. It's time for you to say the same thing. Their verdict is decided. They're letting him know, go this way. They need this man as a walking witness to Jesus' power. They need this man to turn, turn on Jesus and not confess any of this. Now, to this, the man wryly says, maybe sarcastically, you know, maybe I'm not qualified to do a, a full psychological workup on this Jesus guy. You know, I've never actually seen him with my own eyes. I can't vouch for his character. I can't vouch for his standing before God. All I can say is this, verse 25. One thing I know. Here's the, here's the only thing I can say. Though I was blind, now I see. Let's just leave it at that, huh? Well, they continue to pry. They know how powerful his testimony is. So in verse 27, they ask him to recount the story again. I think they're, they're, they're seeking an inconsistency, hoping he'll succumb to intimidation or something. But the man in verse 27, his answer now really drips with sarcasm. And he says in verse 27, you know, why do you want me to keep repeating the story? Have you begun to swoon over his messianic majesty? Are you entranced by his, his divine power? Are you ready to be his disciples? Is that why you want to hear the story again? And now they're really losing it with him, and they begin to insult him in verse 28. They say, the only disciple, Jesus' disciple here is you. Remember, that's the charge that gets you excommunicated from the synagogue if you confess Jesus. The only disciple here is you. And they say, you know who we're disciples of? We're disciples of Moses. We know where Moses comes from. We don't know about this Jesus, where he comes from. This Jesus, he's a wild card. He's a radical. We can't trust him. And notice they say, he cannot be trusted in verse 28 and 29. He cannot be trusted because we do not know where he comes from. And that is a very funny thing to say. It's funny because in, in, in John chapter 7, there they make an argument against Jesus as the Christ because they do know where he comes from. This is John seven twenty-seven. They say, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
So do you pick up on it? We know we're from Jesus, therefore you can't be the Messiah. Because everyone knows when the Messiah comes, they won't know where he comes from. But now do you see? He can't be the Christ because we don't know where he comes from. So we want to say to them, well, which is it? You disqualified him because you do know. Now you disqualify him because you don't know. So which is it? Do you know where he's from or not? And should that knowledge qualify him or disqualify him? You can't have it both ways. Do you see what's being said? They're absolutely blind to the contradiction. They're blind to just basic logic. They can't even think straight because of how much they hate Jesus. Well, what comes next is, I think, a remarkable display of courage and common sense on the part of the blind man. If they're ignorant of his origin, if they don't know what to make of him in verse 29, well, they have the same data to evaluate Jesus as he does. And they just admitted they don't know him. They don't know where he comes from. They don't have some secret dossier on Jesus. The only data they have on Jesus is this blind man now sees. And the blind man points out two interesting things about this sign. The first thing he points out in verse 31 is this was no act of man but, but an act of God because it is not like God to empower reprobate sinners. Verse 31 again. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He simply points out, you know, God tends to answer the prayers of his righteous people and work powerfully on their behalf. So for God to do that on behalf of Jesus, is that a mark against the charge you're making against him that he's such a big sinner? Shouldn't we think about this? Should we reevaluate? He points that out. But then he points something else out very interesting. He points out that the healing of blindness is extremely rare in the Bible. And actually, there is no record of it being done to a man who was born blind in the Bible. So verse 32 is literally true. Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That There is not a story in the Old Testament of someone who was born blind whose sight was healed. This is an extraordinary sign that there is no record of ever happening before. This has never happened before. And you know the place in the Old Testament that speaks most explicitly about the healing of the blind? It's in the prophecies of Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, which speaks of the signs of Messiah's, the Messiah's arrival, one of which is to open the eyes that are blind. If you want to go find blind people seeing in the Bible, go to Isaiah 42, prophecies of the Messiah, and now here we have someone who's doing that. A reasonable conclusion. Given the simple pieces of data that we have, here's a reasonable conclusion, verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Call me crazy, but I think if this man were not from God, he wouldn't have healed you. Well, verse 34, their answer to that engages none of his logic, and they simply hurl an insult at him, which Jesus has already debunked, by the way, in verse 3. They say, we know you were born in sin because you were born blind. That's all we need to know about you. Now, irony, their insult only further confirms the extraordinary sign because they're arguing, they're agreeing he was born blind. They say, you're born blind. We know you're a sinner. But of course, he's not blind anymore. He sees. But their rage only blinds them to this. And so at the end of verse 34, what they're doing is they're giving him the excommunication his parents were afraid of receiving themselves. It says they cast him out. It's a way of saying, you're out, buddy. You're not welcome in the synagogue. You're not welcome in the community. You're an outcast now. Well, in verse 35, it is only now that Jesus reenters the story and he tells this man and he tells us what all of this means. And what this means is, is that the blind now see 
while the seeing are now blinded. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment has come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, quote, we see, your guilt remains. So remember the guy who got his sight back, he never actually saw Jesus' face with his new eyes. And so that explains his lack of recognition. At first he doesn't know who this man is. But Jesus seeks out the blind man and he asks in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? This messianic title, do you believe in the Son of Man? Still not knowing he's talking to the man who healed him, he expresses eagerness to know the identity of the Son of Man so he can so we can believe in him. And in verse 37, as soon as Jesus reveals himself as that one, what you find is that both kinds of sight instantly aligned. As he recognizes Jesus with his physical eyes, he also recognizes Jesus as the Son of Man who is to be believed in and is to be worshipped in verse 38. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. John 9 is the account of a man's eyes being opened, not just physically, but spiritually. Gradually through the chapter, the man is venturing toward fully seeing, fully recognizing Jesus for who he is. Do you see the progression of the man? In the beginning, in verse 11, all he says about Jesus is, he's called Jesus. In verse 17, as he's pushed a little bit in the investigation, he says, well, he's a prophet. In verse 33, as he's arguing with the Pharisees, he says, well, this man must be from God. So now he's saying something a little bit more. And then finally, in verse 37... When he meets Jesus, he confesses Jesus' full identity and that he worships him. From he's called Jesus to he must be a prophet to he must be from God to you are the son of man and you are worthy of worship. This is a blind man who has seen Jesus in a way almost no one else in the gospel of John has before to this point. Verse 39 is really the the, uh, so what of the whole chapter. Verse 39 Jesus said, for judgment has come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. This sign has really signified a much deeper spiritual truth. As much as Jesus' entrance into the world has been in order to give the blind sight in the physical way in the sign and then in a, in a spiritual way, he also says, you know, my, my appearance in the world has also had the opposite effect for many people, making the seeing people blind. In verse 5 he said, I came to be the light of the world. I came to lead a blind world out of the wilderness of sin into the land of promise, a new exodus sort of thing. To use the Genesis imagery of the chapter, Jesus came to work a new, a new act of creation. He came to make new light, to say, let there be light. He creates from dirt. He makes people whole. He restores the good creation of Genesis 1 and 2. I came to do all of this. This is what the blind man has seen. But at the same time, he says in verse 39, the quote-unquote seeing people, the enlightened ones, the ones in the know, have repeatedly and stubbornly refused to see Jesus rightly. 
each pronouncement they have made about Jesus in the chapter has become more and more ludicrous. They cannot see their own contradictions. They cannot see their own hypocrisy. They have proven themselves to be the actual blind ones, totally unable to recognize the work of God happening right in front of their face. Jesus doesn't come to blind. He doesn't come to judge. He comes to give life. He comes to save. But verse 39 says his coming will have the effect of also blinding and judging those who hate the light. Judging those who want nothing to do with his salvation. Now all of this was apparently said somewhat publicly because in verse 40, some Pharisees are, are, hear this and they catch his drift and they ask, what, what are you saying about us? Are we also blind? Are you talking about us? And Jesus, Jesus' response in verse 40, 41 is both um, insightful but also pretty, pretty damning. He says in verse 41, you know, if you were blind, if only you were blind, if only you knew your true state, if only you knew your ignorance, if only you knew your desperate need, if only you humbled yourself before God and cried out for guidance and grace, you know, I can work with that. I can work with blindness. If only you were blind, I can work with that. Haven't you seen what I've done? But you know what I can't work with? I can't work with those who are living under the delusion that they already see. You know what I can't work with? I can't work with the pride. I can't work with the, hey, we have all the answers attitude. I can't work with self-righteousness. I can't work with the refusal to be corrected. I cannot work with blind people who insist that they're not blind. Jesus says there is no sight for those who think they already see. There is no healing for those who think that they're well. There is no forgiveness for those who think they're already righteous. There's no progress for those who think they've already arrived spiritually. So what I want you to see is this chapter tells a story that is both beautiful and heartbreaking. The blind man sees while the seeing ones are blinded. This chapter teaches us coming to Jesus, it's not just a matter of evaluating Jesus and his claims. As crucial in coming to Jesus is evaluating ourselves rightly and our claims about ourselves. If we don't get the most basic truth about ourselves right, that we are blind, that we are in desperate need of guidance, that we don't have all the answers, that we aren't okay as we are, if we don't get that basic truth about ourselves right, we will never see Jesus for who he is, which is the light of the world, the one who came to give the blind sight. This is the irony of the gospel, that the first step to seeing is to admit our blindness. The first step to getting well is to admit that we're sick. The first step to forgiveness is to admit that we need it. And so as, we're, as we wrap up, let me think about the sort of three models we see in this chapter. Because there might be someone here this morning who's walking the Pharisee path. The Pharisee path is acting like you've got it together, fooling yourself along with everyone else, when really you stand in desperate need of Jesus and you just haven't admitted it yet. That's the Pharisee path. There might be someone else walking the path of the blind man's parents, which is you know the truth, you know about Jesus, but you're afraid of the consequences of owning up to it. You're afraid of saying out loud, of confessing to him. You're afraid of any negative consequences that might come, and so you just kind of stay away, keep an arm's length away. Knowing the truth, you know a little bit more than the Pharisees, but you're not willing to own up to it. But then there is the path of the blind man, the man who's really the hero of this chapter along with Jesus, which is to know the true state of your condition, and then let Jesus make you whole, and then to boldly proclaim to whoever asks us, no matter the consequence, 
I'll tell you who he is. He is the Son of Man, the one I worship. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come to admit your blindness or to own up to Jesus. Whatever your spiritual need, we invite you now as we stand and sing. What will you do with Jesus? A question comes to you. And you must give an answer for something you must do. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, what shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? He's knocking at the door. Refuse him so no longer, lest he should plead no more. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, what shall your answer be?